Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let all men know your forbearance. The Lord is at hand. Have no anxiety about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will keep your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is gracious, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, do, and the peace of God will be with you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You and I live in a very exciting and and wonderful time. When I look around and I see all of the innovation, all the changes in technology, I mean, it's an incredible world that is just changing in front of us. When you think about the exploration of space, when you think about space travel that will become available to regular people like you and me, when I start looking at what's happening in medicine and what what physicians can do. When I look at transportation and you realize driverless cars are already a reality. When you look at communication and the power of our mobile devices and the platforms of social media, I mean, it's an incredible world. And it is changing so rapidly. I I look at the changes in the last 50 years. I look at the changes in the last 15 years. And it really makes me a a little sad that 50 years from now, I won't get to see just how much this world has changed because I'm not sure we're going to recognize it 50 years from now. It's unbelievable. So it's an exciting time to be alive. It can be a little unnerving because the change is happening so rapidly, but it does still make it an exciting time. But you know, there is one thing that hasn't changed. And that's our inability to get along with other people. One of the things that hadn't changed is our struggles and our human relationships. What has changed is the tone of the conversations. When you talk to people who help to lead local government, government on a state level, a national level, When you talk to people who are in sports or you simply watch the news with protesters, you know, the conversation, the tone has changed where it has now become so sharp, hard, mean. It's okay to call people names and to smear one's character. The the tone has changed. I I don't know if, if you've ever watched Jimmy Kimmel the late time uh, host, he has a thing on his show where he has had his people start surfing and discovering people's tweets towards people who are celebrities. They're real tweets. They go and find them 
And then they go get these celebrities to read the tweets um, that were sent to them. And usually there'll be two, three, four of them. And, and quite often they'll get into it and they kind of have fun. Sometimes you can tell it really kind of makes them mad. But these tweets that people send to these celebrities they do not know for tens of thousands of people to read, I wanted to read you a few of them. Peyton Manning. I love Peyton Manning. Peyton Manning is the only NFL player that looks like the mascot of the team he plays for. Hashtag horseface. Danny Amendola, also a football player. Danny, with his mustache, looks like a young Burt Reynolds with the height of Sally Field. Kevin James, comedian. Is there a Kickstarter campaign for Kevin James to never make another movie? Dennis Quaid. I love Dennis Quaid. Dennis, a great acting Dennis, you old irrelevant pig. Rob Lowe. Rob looks like skin cancer. Daniel Radcliffe, star of Harry Potter. Daniel is one of God's most unattractive creations since the aardvart. Kurt Russell. Kurt's face is made of aged denim. Now I want you to know, these are the nice ones. These are the ones that I went and found that I could read to you that were not the ones that used um, foul language, four-letter words, that were calling people stupid um, and saying, I hate you. No, these are the nice ones. Grandparents, teach your children, we don't talk like this. It amazes me to see what we believe is okay to say to other people. I I really do believe that part of the reason it's happening is social media. Social media can be used for so much good. But social media does provide a platform where you can say things that you would have never said to someone face to face. And things that go to thousands of people and we can be so incredibly and sensitive and mean, I really think those platforms have encouraged it. And social media has also created a situation where we have something we call fake news. Now, I'd never heard of fake news. I'd never even thought of something like that. And then we've come to learn that all kinds of news stories are really being made up. We we know without a doubt that foreign governments have put out all kinds of news stories that are not true in order to get us to be mad at one another. And so it becomes a challenge to know what is true. Just like you have people who are not necessarily foreign governments, you can look right here at home to people like Alex Jones. Alex Jones is a radio host out of Austin, Texas. He calls himself a conspiracy theorist. He's made millions as a radio talk show host. And he spews venom and hatred and prejudice and thinks up all the kinds of conspiracies of the government. 
Just this last week, it was Facebook and Twitter that banned him forever from using those platforms because of what he was inciting in the country and the things that he was saying. For instance, one of the things that he said was that Sandy Hook, the massacre, the shooting there, never happened. You see, he's a gun rights advocate, and he said it was the government that tried to create Sandy Hook in order to push gun legislation. So Sandy Hook, the shooting, never happened. It's a conspiracy. When other 20 children, six and seven years old, died, six adults died, One year, about one year after the shootings in Sandy Hook, there was an Episcopal church there who had lost a child, Ben, six years old in the school. His family was a member of the church. They created a, this organization, foundation, to help their youth each year go on a mission trip to do something in Ben's honor and bless the world. And that was the year they came to Oklahoma City to respond to the more tornadoes. And so these people from Sandy Hook came to Oklahoma City and they came to our bombing memorial and the person who was speaking to them that day was a Reverend Wendy Lambert. She's one of the people who speaks down there so often because of her association with our memorial. She went to go see them down in, in Moore. She got to know them and they then invited her to come to New York to Sandy Hook to preach there on Sunday morning and be with their people. And she went and she went to the cemeteries and she saw the headstones and she met the families. You can ask her, is this a conspiracy that never happened? No, it bothers me that people can say these things, but what really bothers me is that there are several hundred thousand people who believe it. That's what I have a hard time wrapping my mind around. We've become harsh in what we say and we struggle with what is the truth. It was a few weeks ago that Phil and Wendy and Josh and myself, I, I, we all went up to Washington, D.C. to the Museum of the Bible. What an incredible place. We went up to go see this gift that has been given by the Green family right here in Oklahoma City. Really a a gift to the world. We went up there to to go and be at the Museum of the Bible and we met with leaders there so we could kind of go behind the scenes and see how they did things and what they could offer and how we could develop programs where we could lead groups here from our church multiple times a year to go for a short trip to the Museum of the Bible, to study a specific topic, to see how the Bible has impacted our history and how it can affect our culture, to look and go to other museums as well, to tie these themes together. We have some great ideas starting in 2019 and moving on. But but while we were there, we saw the Museum of the Bible and then we um, went over to the Holocaust Museum. I've been there before, but I can tell you every time I go, I come out speechless. You go through and you see six million people who were systematically put to death. You begin to learn the stories of individuals and families 
It, it is one of the most moving museums I've ever been to. And you, you come out of it and it reminds you, it is there to tell the story of how people were there to take pictures and to say, we want to prove this happened. And you come out and you realize this is what can happen when hate runs rampant. And people become intolerant and mean. This last year when we were in Germany for the Reformation tour trip, we went to Buchenwald, one of the concentration camps. And it was then that we learned, I'd never heard before, but every year students in elementary school in Germany, when they reach the fifth grade, all fifth grade students are required to go to a concentration camp. They want these students to be able to know this is what happened in our country. This is what can happen when hate is unchecked. It is a powerful and important thing that we learn how that we can have discourse and disagree and do it in some sort of a, of a civil way. And right now you and I live in this exciting and challenging time when conversations have become so incredibly harsh because people disagree. That's why in our scripture lesson this morning we are looking at Paul's letter to the Philippians. We have the sermon series right now, Think on These Things. And each week we're going to be looking at this passage in Philippians from the 4th through the ninth verse. Every week the same one. We're going verse by verse by verse to see what Paul said to the church in Philippi. And we're doing it because if you go back to the first two verses in the 4th chapter, what you will discover is that we have two women who are arguing with one another. Erodia and Synthic. Synthica and Erodia are fighting. They are leaders in the church. And Paul is telling them, agree in the Lord. He encourages the rest of the church, help these two women agree in the Lord. Now we don't know what they were fighting about. All we know is their legacy for 2,000 years is that we remember two women in the church in Philippi were having a big fight. And Paul wanted to say, help them, help them find peace in the Lord, to agree in the Lord. I'm going to come back and talk about that next week. What does that really mean? How do we do that? But suffice it to say, there was this great struggle going on in the church. And it's right after Paul talks about that struggle that he gives us these verses 4 through 9 on things he asked the church to think about, the things to do in order to survive this kind of strife and this kind of struggle and time. What he says to the church in Philippi, I believe he speaks to us. And so it is, I want us to look at three things that Paul says to us in the fourth and the fifth verses today. First of all, Paul said, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I say, rejoice. Times were tough. Rejoice. What do you rejoice in? What makes you rejoice? Usually we rejoice when we win. Yesterday was a good day for Oklahoma football. I watched both games. It was quite exciting. People can rejoice. We win. 
Sometimes we rejoice when we say we're number one. We rejoice when we can compare ourselves with others and we feel better than everybody else. We're better looking. We have more success. We have nicer things. Sometimes we rejoice and feel good about things when we have all the material things we want. Remember, Paul writes this letter to the Philippians when he is in prison. Paul does not have success. He didn't win. He isn't number one. He has material needs. The Philippians are sending him a care package. No, Paul doesn't rejoice because of all those things that we can rejoice in. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. In a very difficult time, where does he find hope? Where does he find strength so that he can still, quote, rejoice? Rejoice in the Lord. That's where we find our hope. If it's just going to be on you to be able to maintain things or change the world, you're going to feel overwhelmed and depressed. Rejoice in the Lord. When we went to the Museum of the Bible, we saw so many amazing things. You know, they say you would have to go for nine days, eight hours a day to see all the exhibits. Well, people can't do that, so... You have to pick and choose. And we're going to try to put together um, a curriculum to go see certain things. One of the things that I'd never even heard of before was the Slave Bible. The Slave Bible. It was first printed in 1808. It turned out that the abolitionists were really coming down hard on the slave owners for the way they were treating their slaves. And so the slave owners wanted to show they were being good And they were trying to make Christians out of their slaves. And so they printed the slave Bible. And yes, most slaves couldn't read, but there were some who could. And it could be used to teach and they could worship using the slave Bible. Now the fascinating thing is the slave Bible is edited. When you begin reading it, it will go through Genesis and you'll read about Joseph and how Joseph was sold into slavery and he did so well and was so happy. But then they cut out the part about Moses, the Exodus, God leading the people to freedom. Anywhere in the Bible it talked about freedom, anywhere it talked about God leading people out of captivity into a promised land or a new life, anywhere Jesus would be talking about freedom in Christ or Paul, all that got cut out. So they could give the Bible to the slaves and say, here is what you can read, but you cut out the heart of our faith. You and I have the whole story. And the story is about how God is the one who leads us out of captivity. God is the one who leads us into a promised land. God is the one who gives us hope when we have no hope. And sometimes when you and I look around in the world, we feel so helpless with all that is going on and being said. And if you feel like it's all on you and you're getting depressed, remember, rejoice in the Lord. Your hope is in Christ. It's not just about you. Secondly, Paul would say, let all people see your forbearance. 
Now, the word forbearance can also be translated, this Greek word can be translated gentleness. It can also be translated graciousness towards others. You'll find that in other translations of the Bible. The word, the Greek word is translated differently. A gentle spirit, a gracious spirit towards others. That's really fascinating when you stop and think about it, that Paul is saying, let people see your gracious spirit. What was the spirit of Jesus? Boy, I started thinking of the stories that came to mind so quickly. Jesus being in Samaria, going to a well, and here comes a Samaritan woman. She'd been married five times. She was living with a sixth man. Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Women did not talk to men. She was an outcast in her own people. And Jesus sits down on the well and he shows such respect and kindness. It changes her life and so many others in their town. Jesus and the Samaritan woman, such a gentle spirit. Or I suddenly thought about how Jesus was going along with a group of important people and they having this theological discussion about things that really mattered. And here come the women carrying their babies. And you know what can be more important to a mom than her child? And yet women didn't interrupt men and children were not held in high esteem. They were not important. And yet Jesus sees what's going on and he goes over and he sits down on a rock and he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. What a statement he makes. Or I think about when he enters into the town of Jericho and everybody wants to see this man who's become so famous. And as he comes into Jericho, the streets are lined and there's this short man who is a tax collector and everybody despises him. He's an outcast. They're pushing him to the back of the crowd. He climbs up in a tree and Jesus looks up and says, Zacchaeus, come down. I'm having lunch with you today. The person who is despised, who is an outcast, being pushed away, I'm having lunch with you. Now, I, I think about how Jesus was walking into a town, and again, people knew about his healing power, and everyone was pressing around, and there was a woman who had had a flow of blood for 12 years, which made her ritually unclean. For 12 years, she'd been separated from her faith, and she came up and behind touched the hem of his garment. And Jesus stopped and said, who touched me? And she said, I did. And he said, daughter, daughter, your faith has made you well. I think it's one of the most tender and beautiful stories in the New Testament when Jesus looks at this woman who's been suffering and she says, daughter, daughter. Jesus, who was so strong, Jesus, who was so powerful, had such a gentle spirit, a gracious spirit towards others. Now, isn't it interesting? Paul knows that the people in Philippi and the Christians are not going to change what's happening in Rome. But he says, let all people see your gracious spirit. Do not be like everybody else. Let people see your gracious spirit. 
And isn't it interesting as we look back in history to see that the Roman Empire would fall and the kingdom of Christ would continue to grow? What Paul's asking is that it's for you and I to be those witnesses. Those people who in a world where you can't change everything to be different. To be the people who choose to have a gentle spirit. A gracious spirit towards others. For when you do that, you make a witness to our faith. And I tell you, it's going to do something to your soul. It will bring you comfort in the midst of a crazy world. You know, I always hate to use any kind of a political example just because everybody reads so much into it. But here recently, we've all been watching the the funeral of John McCain. And they showed this clip that I, many times now, but I remember very much when it happened about 10 years ago, when John McCain was campaigning against Barack Obama for the presidency. And remember, he's campaigning against Obama, and he's in a town hall meeting. And there's a woman who grabs the microphone to ask a question, and she just said, I'm terrified. I'm terrified of this man, Obama. I mean, he's a Muslim. He's an Arab. He wasn't born here. Scares me to death. And John McCain takes the microphone away from him and says, no, ma'am, no, ma'am, no, ma'am. I believe that I would be a better president than Barack Obama. But he is a good man. He was born in the United States. He's an American. He's a good man. To disagree about an issue, but to have civility of a person's character. I watched that and it made me think about an Oklahoman, Tom Coburn. I do not know Tom personally, but I remember very clearly watching on TV when he was at a town hall meeting years ago running for the Senate. And as he's talking about the things that he wants to do and the things he disagreed with the Democrats, there was a woman who had the microphone and she was going off on Nancy Pelosi, who was Speaker of the House, how bad Nancy was and how dangerous and how much she despised her. And Tom Coburn said, ma'am, do you know Nancy Pelosi personally? She was taken back and she said, well, no. He said, I do. I I know Nancy personally. I can tell you we disagree on many ways to handle things, but she's a good person. She is a really good person. Civility, a gentle spirit, a gracious spirit towards others, when we disagree... And you and I can't get everybody else to act that away. But we can choose to act that away. We can choose to act that way in our tweets and Facebook posts and calls and the way we talk to one another. For when we do, we're a witness for the faith, a witness that will endure. And I tell you, it'll do something for your soul. When you live with a gracious spirit. And so, third, Paul says, the Lord is near. 
the Lord is at hand. Now, scholars say this, this almost doesn't seem to fit. I mean, we're, we're going along and we're talking about rejoicing in the Lord. Let everyone see your forbearance, your gentleness. And suddenly it says, the Lord is at a hand. Now, we know that Paul expected Jesus to come back in his lifetime and for the world to end. It's called the second coming. He expected Jesus to come back, the second coming, and wrap everything up. It's eschatology. That's the type of theology it is. I'm going to talk about that also next week. Your theology, how do you deal with eschatology, the end of all times? But we don't know if that's what Paul was referring to here. The Lord is at hand. He's coming back right now. Or did Paul mean something like Psalm 145, ninth verse, where it says, And the Lord is near all who trust in Him. The Lord is near all who trust in Him. Is it the issue we all feel that the Lord is near? And if you feel the Lord is near, well, it's a lot easier to have a gracious spirit towards others and to rejoice in the Lord if you know the Lord is near. Maybe that's why he added that in right here. The Lord is at hand. If he's at hand, I bet we would feel different. How do you know the Lord is at hand? Just a couple quick thoughts. First of all, turn off your TV. You know, you and I can watch TV so much and you watch these 24-hour talk shows and it is addicting and it will depress you. Now, I had a strange experience not long ago. We lost our television. Our television was there. It didn't break. But we have satellite TV. And it quit working all of a sudden. And it was right before we were about to go on vacation. And I said, I don't have time to deal with it. I don't have time to call or get an appointment or be here. We'll deal with it when we come back. So we went several weeks without any TV. We then went off on vacation. And where we went, didn't have any TV. So more weeks went by without any TV. And then we came home and I finally made the call to get our TV fixed. And they came out and they said, oh, well, it's all because of the trees. You got to trim the trees. And so they left. We had no TV. So we had to finally try to trim the trees and get it all set and then make another appointment. And it's another week. And they came back out and they got up and they looked at the dish and they said, no, actually the dish got moved because of some storm. And they turned the dish back and boom, there was the TV. So we had gone without weeks and weeks, several months without television. And what I happened to notice was my happiness quotient went up. I really felt better about things. Now, I'm not saying don't watch TV. I mean, I watched a lot of football yesterday. You know, I I love my HGTV. I, I, I love winding up watching the news. But you and I can watch too much. To know the Lord is at hand. The Lord is near. Maybe to spend that time, a devotional life, time of prayer. Maybe it's about time taking a walk and being able to see the beauty of God's creation around and communing with God. 
What are you doing to nurture your spirit and the awareness that Christ is near? The presence of God. When you take the time to nurture that, you feel that God is near. What does it mean to be grateful? You know, we've had this year of gratitude twice now because we have seen that grateful people seem to know the presence of God. And when you start watching all of the craziness going on in the world and the struggles and you feel powerless and you feel overwhelmed and it becomes depressing, do you ever take time just to turn all the noise off and be able to list the ways that you're blessed? Thanking God for the way that God has blessed you, thanking the many grateful things you have to live in gratitude. And what we also know is that if you're living in gratitude and you feel the Lord is near, it'll change the way you treat the people around you. Do something kind. When you do something kind, it'll do something for your soul. It will lift your spirits to remember the Lord is near. It will affect how you treat others. Now, some of you have heard me tell this story before. I, but, you know, it's, it's a story that happened more than 30 years ago, and it still affects my life to this day. So I think it's an important story. Some of you know that one of my pet peeves is, you know, when you're out driving, we have a lot of construction going on out here in Oklahoma, and, and they're always trying to force us down to one lane. And when you see these signs and you're being forced down to one lane, I'm one of those who queues up. I know the right thing to do. You get in line to go through, but you have other people who zip down the side and zip down the side. That's wrong. (laughs) I'm just telling you, when I'm queued up and I see people zipping down the side, I want you to know I'm praying for you. I start thinking, are you in a bigger hurry than I am? Not hardly. I'm always in a hurry. And I'm queued up and people are zipping along the side. But I treat people differently about that now than I did 30 years ago. Back when I was in Houston, lived on the southwest side of town, was starting a new church, Mission Bend. And the lane was a two-lane road, but boy, that part of Houston was growing fast, and so they, they were under construction to make it four-lane, and when they got through, it was under construction for six. I think it's eight lanes now. It's been under construction for 27 years, from two-lane to eight-lane. And the whole time I lived there, every time you're driving along, they're in construction. They funnel you down to one lane. It was one of those days I was behind. I was in a hurry. They had us going to one lane. I queued up. And I mean, this was going to take forever. And the whole time, people zip, zip down the side. I couldn't take it. I finally couldn't take it anymore. And I thought, you know, when I get up to the front, I am not letting anybody in. I have waited. You should have waited. And so as I'm getting closer and closer to get up to where it goes to one lane, three cars zip down the side and one of them gets in and another, and now it's down to this one car and me. And I get up on this guy's bumper in front of me. I mean, I am so tight on this guy in front of me. We are inching along. I have made the decision. No one's getting in. No one's getting in. I don't care if we have a wreck. You're not getting in. 
And so you couldn't get a piece of paper between my bumper and the guy's bumper in front of me. We inched, we inched. And it was a beautiful Mercedes beside me, zipped on along, and he's there and he's trying to move in. Now he's moving closer and closer and closer. I just keep looking straight ahead like I don't even see them. I got one focus, stay on this guy's bumper. And we moved closer and closer and closer. And finally, you couldn't fit a piece of paper between our two cars. And somebody's going to finally have to blink. And we're at that moment. And I finally look over with a stare just as he looks over and he stares. And I saw the chairman of the board of our trustees. Now, 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 what did I do? I, I stepped on the brake. Please, go ahead. Go ahead. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. And what did he do? No, no, you go ahead. You go ahead. <laughs> Suddenly, we were both so gracious in our spirit towards each other. I've never forgotten it. And when I find myself in those kind of situations, I will ask myself, Okay, what if that person is somebody you know who's a friend? When I drove home that day, I started thinking, if Jesus had been sitting in the other seat, would he have been proud? When you know the Lord is at hand, the Lord is near, it makes you look at other people differently where you choose to be kind. You live in a gracious spirit towards others. Let everybody see your forbearance, your gentleness, your gracious spirit. It's easier to rejoice where you find hope in the Lord. You and I live in a, an exciting and crazy time. I think Paul would tell us, think on these things. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let each of us lift up our own silent prayer. Amen.